I read the text a minute ago. I want to read it again. My, my Bible pages are not cooperating with me. There we go. All right. John 6, 66. This really stirred my heart this week. Jesus is speaking to the crowds. He tells them some unpleasant things. Some confusing things. He says, unless you eat his flesh or drink his blood, you don't have his life in you. They were confused by that. Of course, he was speaking spiritually, not physically. He said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And then he said some disturbing things like, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's troubling. All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I'll in no wise cast out. In verse 40, or 65, he kind of ends his talk. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They wanted the bread. They wanted the fishes. They wanted to watch the mystic work his miracles. But they didn't want him. They didn't want him. Unfortunately today, a lot of Christians in America who don't want him. They want the t-shirts. They want the excitement. They want to jump up and down. They want to run around the room. They want a rock concert. They want cultural Christianity. But if you strip all that away, do you really want Christ? You realize today on Resurrection Sunday, believers met in South America, Central America, in places like Vietnam and North Korea. And they met without all the pomps and frills that we have. No beautiful special music. That was beautiful, brother. No nice suits to wear. They meet quietly. They meet secretly, and all they get is Jesus. And if that's not enough, that, that's not, not, there's nothing else to draw them in. In fact, just meeting invites death and torture. I'm afraid in many an American church today, if that were us, you could say many of his disciples went back and walked. No more with him. Because we don't want Christ, do we? We want all the stuff that Christ gives us. But if you take it all away, do you still want Christ? Do you still want Christ? Remember R.C. Sproul saying that if for some reason, in light of my faith in him and my trust, if I stood before God one day and he still sent me to hell, I'd still say that was just and right. We deserve nothing Amen. from Christ. Do you understand that, church? Amen. Yeah. I told you guys, I say it over and over again. He's not our vending machine to get blessings. He's the son of the living God. We don't come to Jesus for the benefits. I'm getting tired of people telling me, Pastor, why is my marriage falling apart? I'm going to church. 
Why are my kids rebelling? We're, we're going to church. You don't come to church for the benefits of a better life. You don't come here to fix problems. You come here because you love Jesus. That's why you come. That's why Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That means if my life falls apart, I'm going to keep worshiping Christ. If you're here today to fix a problem, you've come to the wrong place. But if you come for Christ, you're going to find Christ. And if you find Christ, by the way, he'll fix your marriage and help your children. But if he doesn't, do you still want Christ? What are the terms, Christian? What are the terms that you and I have where we're going to turn back and walk no more with him? If he does this, I'm not going to love him anymore. If he does this, I'm not going to serve him anymore. If that's your attitude or in your heart, you need to repent. Because you're not worshiping for the right reason right now. It doesn't matter what he takes away or what he gives. He is who he is. The Christ. To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Nowhere. There's nowhere else to go. This world doesn't have answers for us. This world can't help us. They can't help themselves. Hollywood can't help you. The government can't help you. Popular culture changes so fast, it can't help you. You're going to get exhausted trying to keep up with it. But Christ, the Son of God, that's where we go. That's where we go with our sin. That's where we go with our lives. Getting off topic, I'm sorry. I am I'm just so fired up that Christ is enough. Why do we act like he's not enough? He is enough and more than we could ever need. And we go to this world, we go to other things. It's just nonsense. This world never brought me peace. Never. It never brought me joy. Do you know why the suicide rate in America is so high? Oh, you watch the news and tell you it's this or it's that. It's none of those. It's hopelessness. Because we live in a fallen, broken world where we struggle with sin every day. And people without hope figure, well, if this life is all there is, let's just get it over with now and I'll finally be at rest. But what they find beyond that is there's no rest, saith my God, to the wicked. That's what Isaiah said. But Jesus said, come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You know why we go out and preach the gospel in the streets, in the park? Because there's people out there who need rest. And Jesus is calling. To whom shall they go? They won't find rest anywhere else. They won't find rest in, 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 in modern American evangelical. I was there. I was there in the easy, easy believism church. I found no rest. Brother Tatsuo was there in the Buddhist religion. He found no rest. Brother Ishan was there with the Muslim religion. He found no rest. Carmen can attest to the Roman Catholic Church. She found no rest. There's no rest anywhere but in Christ alone. Why do we look other places when we have a resurrected Savior? If death couldn't conquer him, nothing can. And we have victory in Christ. 
This world never offered us that, did it? No. So to whom shall we go? To the world or to Christ? What makes Christianity unique? <laughs> it's an interesting question. I'm going to answer by giving you several things that set Christianity apart from every other world religion. Number one, it's rooted in history. The Christian faith is rooted in history. Not only the history of the Jewish nation, but the Bible traces the people of God back to the beginning. You realize that? Think about it. From Adam to his two sons, the chosen line being Abel, who was murdered by his brother Cain. He was replaced by Seth. The line of Seth went down to Noah, who brought the knowledge of God through the flood. From him, the chosen line went through Shem, down to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac, then to Jacob, from Jacob to his 12 sons, who became the 12 patriarchs, through whom came the 12 tribes, of which is born Jesus of Nazareth, and from him to all nations. That's unique. Say, so when did Christianity start? Did it start with Jesus? It started long before Jesus. God was working something long before Jesus. At the center of our religion is the most unique person in history, Jesus of Nazareth. As the officers said in John 7, 46, when they went to arrest him, they came back empty-handed. Why didn't you arrest him? And what did they say? Never man spake like this man. Wow. Who is this guy? That's what they said. Remember when he calmed the storm? What manner of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. But you and I don't, do we? <laughs> That's ironic. Number three, all other religions honor Christ. You don't have a religious figure that's universally honored by all religions, but Christ. You ever think about that? We don't honor Buddha. Buddhists don't honor Muhammad. Muslims don't honor Mary. Catholics don't honor Hindus, or the many gods of the Hindus. But Christ is universally revered, even by false religions. If he's not their God, he's at least their prophet. Now this creates problems because he claimed to be God, which if he wasn't, makes him a false prophet. But number four, God became one of us. No other religion has that. You're going to be told, and we're going to talk about it here in this message this morning, that, God, that Jesus was based on other... It's not true. No other religion has ever taught that God became a person. By uniting a divine nature and a human nature into one person, ever. The ultimate defining act of, or aspect of Christianity is the resurrection. The question to us this morning is this. Can we be sure that it happened? That's the question. Can we be sure that it happened? I want to give you, to start off, five historical proofs of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the main part of the message. It's kind of a pre... It's an appetizer. <laughs> Call that It's an appetizer. People often accuse Christianity of being a, a, a religion based on blind faith. But in reality, our faith is grounded in historical fact. A couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, the missing body of Jesus. Both the Romans and the Jews hated early Christians. Now, I think you're an intelligent person, you'll admit, it's impossible that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Well-armed, well-trained Roman guards 
were standing guard of the tomb. So let's just stop the nonsense. The disciples stole his body. If it was stolen, it was stolen by the Jews or the Romans, either of which to stamp out the Christian movement could have simply presented the bodies at see, He's not risen from the dead. Here he is. They didn't do it because they didn't have it. They didn't have it. The missing body is one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection. Another one is the martyrdom of the apostles. You won't be tortured and killed for a lie that you created unless you're insane. And the chance of 12 insane people coming together is very unlikely. Very unlikely. Number three, the eyewitnesses. Jesus wasn't covert. He lived 40 days among them after he rose from the dead. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that more than 500 people saw him at one time, and many were still alive when Paul said that to be questioned. Go ask them. Number four, the brothers of Jesus, Jude and James. Both wrote books of the Bible. Both were unbelievers at the crucifixion and believers a few days later. The only way to explain that is they encountered the risen Christ. And then number five, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. A man who hunted Christians down and had them imprisoned and killed for their faith, claimed to have met the risen Christ and became a completely changed man. He became a Christian apostle and wrote much of the New Testament. Do you want some historical proofs? There you go. As I give you these, I want you to emphasize that people aren't unbelievers for a lack of evidence. Okay. Romans 1 tells us that we know that God exists, but we suppress that truth because we love our sin. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing the word of God. If they don't believe the word of God, no amount of evidence will convince them because it's not an evidence problem. It's a sin problem. Now, that being said, it's good to remind ourselves that our faith is reasonable and fact-based, not blind. Here's another question. Did the gospel writer steal the story of Jesus from other gods of the past? Have you heard this argument before? I think it's important we know how to answer this. A few weeks ago, a demon-possessed man at Wilson Park. What's the word I'm looking for? Accosted us while we were preaching. Angry vitriol, just his face got red, his veins popped out, and then he made a mistake. As I was listening to him, at first I thought he was just a guy who didn't agree with us, but then he said Jesus was a myth. I know better, because I've studied it. And he said, have you ever heard of the God Ra? I have, actually. I have. But he hasn't. I could tell by the things he was saying. In other words, he's saying Jesus is a myth copied from the God of Ra. You guys are deceived idiots. We're going to address Ra in just a minute. On the movie The Da Vinci Code, the professor at the beginning lists a bunch of gods of ancient history and says that supposedly they tell the same story as Jesus. This is a common argument. You hear it in Hollywood movies all the time. But is it true? Most of the time, they quote these facts without quoting sources. And the reason for that is they have no sources. It's blatantly false. 
They're only parroting arguments they've heard on the internet. They hate Christ, so they don't research the claims. As long as those claims can make Christ seem false, they're okay with them. Again, it's not evidence. It's their hatred of Christ that drives that. They don't want truth. They want to hate the truth. They want anything they can find that discredits the truth. Take, for instance, the man of the park. He claimed that Jesus never existed, that he was just a myth. And kept asking if we heard about Ra. Well, I had. I had. While he's trying to say that Jesus is just a copy of Ra, he's wrong. So I took this. You know me, I like to take honest sources. I'm not about lying about our enemies. Whether I teach on another religion or atheism, I try to be as honest as I can. So I took this from the Egyptian Museum, a not-so-friendly Christian source, not a, not a Christian source. This is what they have to say about the god Ra. Ra was the king of the deities and the father of all creation. He was the patron of the sun, heaven, kingship, power, and light. He was not only the deity who governed the actions of the sun, he could also be the physical sun itself, as well as the day. While he possessed many literal forms, Ra also expressed himself differently when combined with other deities. When associated with Amun, one of the great unknowable creator deities, he became Amun-Ra and represented the raw universal power of the sun. Combined with Horus, he became Ra-Horus in the horizon. Horus represented Ra in a human form as the pharaoh in Egypt. Ra could take also the guise of, the fierce of his fierce daughter or his loving daughter. He moved the sun across the sky as the beetle and brought it back to the underworld on a mythical barge. There is zero in that description that mimics the biblical account. Nothing. And that's from a source that's not a Christian source trying to dilute the information. It's not there. What he's done is he's heard the argument online or in a college somewhere and he's repeating it without checking. Is this actually true? What about his claim that Jesus was a myth? This is demonstrably false, by the way. You'll not find any reliable source, scholar anywhere, that believes Jesus was a myth. You'll only find angry professors at colleges that say that. There are sources outside the Gospels that mention Jesus. There are references to Jesus in first century Roman and Jewish sources. Documents indicate that within a few years of Jesus' death, Romans were aware that someone named Christus had been responsible for disturbances in the Jewish community in Rome. That line I just read you came from an atheist historical scholar who acknowledges the truth that Jesus existed and it caused trouble in the Roman Empire. In 64 AD, when reporting on Nero's decision to blame Christians for the fire in Rome, Tacitus, the Roman historian, said this. This is 64 AD. Keep in mind. Jesus died around 33 AD, okay? So within a 30-year range of his death, Tacitus said, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. In this statement, Tacitus affirms that Christ existed, Christians got their name from him, and that Christianity started in Judea, made it to Rome, and that Jesus died by the Roman death penalty, crucifixion. 
and that this was done by Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. In other words, he fully corroborates the gospel narrative. Another source is Pliny the Younger. He wrote letters to Emperor Trajan. Pliny was the Roman governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. In one of his letters, dated around 112 AD, he asked Trajan's advice about the appropriate way to conduct legal proceedings against those being accused of Christians. Pliny relates some of the information he has learned about these Christians. I quote, They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind, end quote. So we see a number of interesting insights into the beliefs and practices of early Christians. First, we see that Christians regularly met on a certain fixed day for worship. This is 112 AD, okay? Second, their worship was directed to Christ. This shows that they believed he was a divine deity. We're told that that was, oh, that came much, much later, developed over, over multiple centuries. No. In 112 AD, they worshiped Christ as God. Pliny says that hymns were sung to Christ as to a God. This demonstrates that Pliny understood that Christians were worshiping an actual historical person as though he were God. Pliny's reference to the, in, to the Christian custom of sharing a common meal alludes to their observance of a communion and the love feast mentioned in the Bible. He mentions that the food is of an ordinary and innocent kind. Early Christians were accused of cannibalism due to the communion being a partaking of the body and blood of Jesus. He's reassuring him, no, no, it's just ordinary food, which also demonstrates that this doctrine of transubstantiation did not exist at the time. He's reassuring them it's not the actual body and blood of Jesus, but ordinary, everyday food. Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote about Jesus and the antiquities of the Jews. His accounts confirm Jesus was crucified by Pilate and that the Christians were his followers. We see a record of Jesus in the Babylonian Talmud, which was written by rabbis between 70 AD and 500 AD. By the way, these are Jewish rabbis, not Christians. I quote, On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. In this, they acknowledge that Jesus, Yeshua, is a form of Yeshua, was hanged. You say, well, I thought he died on a cross. He was hanged on a cross. That's what they're referencing in the, in the, in the, the uh, document. They wanted to stone him, but were not able to, which led to the Roman death, just as the Gospels tell us. He's accused of drawing Israel into apostasy, which is a false claim, but shows the power he had in his teaching over the Jewish people. And it mentions his sorcery which is the confirmation of his miracles that the Bible portrays. The claim that Jesus was a myth or an exaggeration originated in the writings of liberal German theologians in the 19th century. They tried saying that Jesus was a copy of popular dying and rising fertility gods in various places, such as, such as Tammuz in Mesopotamia and Horus in Egypt. The idea that Jesus was copied from Tammuz was investigated by scholars and determined to be completely baseless. It has only been recently that these assertions have been resurrected, primarily due to the rise of the internet and the mass distribution of information from unaccountable sources. In other words, they're repeating what they've heard someone else say. A movie recently, I'm not going to tell you the name because you don't need to watch it. I didn't watch it. 
but I got this information from another preacher. A movie made these claims about the god Horus. He was born December 25th of a virgin named Isis Mary. A star in the east proclaimed his arrival. Three kings came to adore the newborn savior. He became a child prodigy, teacher at age 12. At age 30, he was baptized and began a ministry. Horus had 12 disciples. Horus was betrayed, crucified, buried for three days, and resurrected after three days. Now, a non-Christian historical scholar decided to investigate the movie. And here's what the scholar says. Horus was born to Isis. There is no mention in history of her being called Mary. Isis was not a virgin. She was the widow of Osiris and conceived Horus with Osiris. Horus was born in October, November, not December 25th. There's no record of three kings visiting Horus at his birth. Horus is not a savior in any way. He did not die for anyone. There is no accounts of Horus being a teacher at age 12. Horus was not baptized. The only account of Horus that involves water is one story where Horus is torn to pieces with Isis requesting the crocodile god to fish him out of the water. Horus did not have a ministry. Horus did not have 12 disciples. According to the Horus accounts, Horus had four demigods that followed him, and there are some indications of 16 human followers and an unknown number of blacksmiths that went into battle with him. There is no account of Horus being betrayed by a friend. Horus did not die by crucifixion. There is no account of Horus being buried for three days. Horus was not resurrected. There is no account of Horus coming out of the grave with the body he went in with. Some accounts have Horus or Cyrus being brought back to life by Isis and then becoming the lord of the underworld. It's a non-Christian source, folks. Reassuring us that this is not a copy. It's a lie. It's a lie. More examples can be given, but... I don't have time. The historical Jesus portrayed in the Bible is unique. The alleged similarities to Jesus' story and pagan myths are exaggerated. Also consider that these myths predate Christianity. There's very little historical record of the beliefs of those religions from the time that they existed. The vast majority of the earliest writings of these religions date back from the 3rd and 4th centuries A.D. To assume that the pre-Christian beliefs of these religions, of which there's no record, were identical to their post-Christian beliefs is naive. It's more logical, this is from a non-Christian source, it's more logical to attribute any similarities between these religions and Christianity to the religions copying Christian teachings about Jesus. The New Testament has been proven trustworthy. No work of antiquity has more evidence to its historical reliability than the New Testament. The most ancient copies of literature besides the Bible is Homer's Iliad, and there are 1,800 ancient copies. After that, the next one is only 400 ancient copies. There are somewhere around 5,800 ancient copies of the New Testament, either in whole or in fragments. Very few, if any, books about George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, or any other historical figure were written by someone who knew them personally, much less witnessed the events of their life. And yet we accept those as history, don't we? Nobody questions those. We use those in our universities to teach about these men. We take these books written hundreds of years later by people who did not witness the events and we trust them as reliable history. Then we get to the Gospels written by witnesses who knew Jesus, saw the actions of Jesus, written within a generation of his lifetime. We say, that's, that's bogus, that's false. Show me another source. If you held that standard for any other figure in history besides Christ, you would not be able to study history. We're inconsistent. I don't believe the Gospels. Why? 
You know why? Because they reject the Christ the Gospels tell them about. I was watching one, it was a debate in a college between a Christian pastor and a bunch of students. The student says, I reject the Gospels. Give me another source, and I'll believe in Jesus. So he quotes another source. Well, that was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You have to help me out, honey. That was, uh, hmm? Fabricated, let's say that. That was, that was falsified. How about this one over here? Same thing, falsified. Quote something else. That's falsified. That's not the word I'm looking for, but it's plagiarized, it's made up, tainted. Anyways, you guys know. That's why I have notes, because I can't remember stuff. He gave him five, five other historical sources about Jesus from the time of Jesus, and they were all suddenly fabricated. And the guy goes, he goes, you know what your problem is? You don't want Jesus. That's your problem. Whatever I show you, you're going to find a reason to reject it because you don't want him. That's it. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Forged. That's what I was looking for. Thank you, honey. Forged. It pops in out of context, doesn't it? It just... I'm glad it came now, because like five minutes from now, you'd be like, what are you yelling forged for? <laughs> forged. They were forged. That's it. 2 Peter 1.14. Peter says, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle. Verse, yeah, verse 14. Uh, Even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me, moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which, we, which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him transfigured. We heard the voice from heaven. No biographer of Abraham Lincoln can corroborate that. You understand that? They can't say, I was there and saw this amazing. They're writing after his death. Many years later, never knew him. And here we have eyewitnesses of Christ. And we say, nope. Give me another source. You know why? Because it's not the source problem. It's a sin problem. That's the, that's the issue. We know that Christ is God. We know the gospel accounts are true. You realize that the enemies of Christ have had the Bible in their hands for 2,000 years and can't disprove it? That's got to drive them crazy. So they say, well, it was made up. I remember I mentioned it before. For many, many, many years, scholars claim that Isaiah 53 was forged. There's that word again, forged. It's so specific to the death of Christ. It, it must have been added to Isaiah after the death of Christ. And they discovered something called the Dead Sea Scrolls, buried 200 years before Christ, and they contained a complete Isaiah scroll containing, you guessed it, Isaiah 53. Well, there goes that argument. There goes that argument. Go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Here's another eyewitness. 
John, writing, says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifest, and we have seen it, and bear witness to show you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. We've handled him, he says. We've touched him. We've seen with our This is written after the resurrection of Christ. This right, this letter could have had him put to death. You don't do that if you made up the lie. Ever. That'd be insane. But he's saying, I, I've handled the resurrected Christ. Not that you have to handle the resurrected. You see the resurrected Christ, you know. Thomas, huh? <laughs> Lest I see the print in his hands and his side, I'm not going to believe. And Christ comes to him. Oh, Thomas, come here. Reach over your finger, put it into my hand. Reach over your hand, put it in my side. Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas didn't do any of those things, did he? He fell down and said, my Lord and my God, you're real. Jesus said, handle me, touch me. I'm not a ghost. I'm flesh and bone. He wasn't hiding, church. He was open about his resurrection. Touch me. See for yourself. The New Testament was written in the lifetime of those who knew and saw Jesus. If they were embellishing or lying about him, it could have easily been disproven. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I read this earlier, but we'll read it again. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 through 6. Paul appeals to the number of witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. The Bible says that he was seen and that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained of this present, but some are fallen asleep, some have died, he says. He appeared to five hundred people at one time, and then tells the crowd, Go talk to them. I mean, some have died, but most of them are still here. Go talk to them. Go to Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 18. We can see from Paul's sermon on Mars Hill that Jesus was not mistaken for some recycled myth. They weren't reusing an ancient God story. Acts 17, 18. The Bible says that certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. This is talking about Paul. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him into the Areopagus, I think that's how you say that, saying, may we know that what this new doctrine, whereof thou speakest, is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. When Paul preached Jesus, they weren't like, oh yeah, that's like that ancient god Horus over in Egypt. They said, you seem to be a setter forth of strange gods. Tell us about this. Tell us about Jesus and the resurrection. We've never heard this before. This was new. This was unique. He's not a recycled fable from ancient times or they would have known. They're saying, I've never heard this before. This is different. This is strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. What do you mean by this resurrection from the dead? What do you mean by this Jesus, Son of God? What does that mean? 
The New Testament Gospels have withstood nearly 2,000 years of intense scrutiny. Jesus Christ is unique in history. He is different from every false god and myth. The question facing each one of us this morning is simply this. What will you do with Jesus? He's real. He existed in history, in Judea. He died by Roman execution, according to non-Christian sources, under Pontius Pilate, according to non-Christian sources, for leading astray the nation of Israel under, from non-Christian sources, for sorceries, you know, miracles, turning water to wine, healing the blind, stuff like that, according to unchristian sources. Matthew 22, 27, 22 says, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all say unto him, Let him be crucified. He asked the crowd today, what, what do I do with Jesus? Kill him. Kill him. It's like the old chorus of the hymn, What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, What will he do with me? If he's God, folks, worship him as God. Amen. Surrender to him. Turn from your sin and follow him. As it says in the text, to whom shall we go? If he's God, to whom shall we go? To who? Well, I don't like that God. <laughs> That's your problem, not his problem. That's why the Pharisees crucified him. They didn't want that Messiah. Not him. We want a different kind. See, the the, fairy, the leaders of the Jews, they wanted control. They wanted a Messiah who would follow them. If Jesus is God, where can we go for forgiveness of sin? Where can we go with pe for peace with God? Where can we go for eternal righteousness? Only to him. You say, what if he's not? Well, first of all, you have to explain him. If he's not. Explain his sorceries. Explain his teaching. Explain his impact on history. You realize that one man from a small Judean village with 12 followers who died within three years shouldn't be the defining person of history? We mark time by Christ. I mean, we can call it AD and BC, or we can call it Common Era, before Common Era. That's fine, but where, where, where does Common Era begin and before Common Era stop? At Jesus. At Jesus. You have to explain why one insignificant Jewish rabbi is so highly revered by all religions around the world today. You have to explain a lot if you're going to say he's not God. You have to explain the propagation of the religion. Christianity is not like Roman Catholicism and Islam that, that moved through force, right? We, they, we, we, didn't, we don't go to war and take over countries and make the, establish ourselves as a state religion. We preach the gospel and we win hearts. That's how we do it. One time a, a, a skeptic challenged Harry Ironside in San Francisco in street preaching. They challenged him to a debate. And he said, okay. He says, uh, but I'll do it on one condition. I said, when we meet here tomorrow night at this time, you bring with you just one, just one prostitute. Just one. Back there they call them drunkards, alcoholic. 
Just one thief, one murderer, one person who's the scourge of their town. Just bring one of each and have them bear witness, bear testimony how atheism turned them from a life of crime, turned them from a life of murder and theft and prostitution and turned them from the bottle. Just, just one of each, just five. He goes, I'll bring you a hundred of each of those categories who will testify to the power of the gospel in their life to make them a new person. Explain that if Jesus isn't God. History attests to the truthfulness of Scripture. You'll need to deal with his miracles and his resurrection. If he isn't God, then no one is. You understand that? If there is no God, the entire universe unravels. <clears throat> Nothing makes sense if there's no God. Science and the universe can never be explained through random chance. Morality cannot be explained through random chance. If evolution is true, why are evolutionists trying to save the whales? You ever think about that? I think I mentioned that just the other day. Evolution is based on survival of the fittest. Those who are weak die off, and the, and the species gets better by it dying off. If you really believe in evolution, saving the whales will weaken the species. It's completely inconsistent. It's completely contradictory. Why have courts and laws and prisons? If we're just animals, who decides what's right and wrong? Society? Okay, that's great. So when the Nazis were killing Jews, that was fine, right? Because it was legal and it was accepted by society. Oh, they get nervous then. Well, no, no, not. Well, there's, yeah, there's universal standards of morality that have been placed in our heart by God and we know right from wrong. That can't come by random chance. So people say, oh, you Christians, you're for slavery and you're for rape of women. And you have to ask them, what's wrong with slavery and rape of women? if our worldview is not true. You know, when a lion rapes another lion, nobody sets up a court and puts him in jail. If we're just animals, who's to say that's wrong? See, they have to borrow from our worldview to say that's wrong. They're borrowing from the Christian to do that. Murder isn't wrong. If we're here by random chance, development of space dust that exploded billions of years ago, who's to say it's wrong? All the laws of physics and logic cannot be explained or upheld by random chance. Man has intrinsic value because man is made in the image of God. They borrow from that. They steal from us when they try to defend morality from an atheistic point of view. We should care for our planet and save the animals. You know why? Because God has made us stewards over them. They borrow from our worldview to get that. Laws of physics, logic, thermodynamics only make sense because a wise, sensible God upholds all things by the word of his power. There is a God, church, and he has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. How do you know that, Pastor? Because it says so in the scripture, and even non-Christian sources of the time have told me the scriptures are true. So I know it's true. My question is, what do I do with that truth now? Do I submit to him? Or do I reject him? That's the question. Not did he exist, but what are you going to do with him? Because he did exist. 
Real quickly, go to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm almost done, so I'll have you turn there. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. Go back to Acts 17. Acts 17. Verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything. I'll never forget the time of the prison. Catholic priest is walking out and we had chapel right after him. He's walking out and he's carrying the box that has the bread in it. And he tripped and he fell. And he protected that box and he went face first into the concrete. And just ripped all the skin from the side of his face. And we helped him up. Are you okay? I'm, I'm just so glad I didn't hurt Jesus. Jesus dwells not in temples made with hands. You don't carry Jesus around in a box. No, 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 no. I, I know we laugh. And I'm not criticizing your laughter, but... In the moment that day, I was, I felt so bad for him. I actually went to the chapel, I just wept a little bit. Because he's so deceived into thinking that he can create this God and carry him around. When God has manifested himself to us, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven. To whom shall we go? The bread in a box? No. The resurrected Christ. Let's go on. Neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that he might seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he's not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also, or as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He is made of one blood. I read an article the other day. All of mankind descended from two people. I love when Harvard finally comes and gets onto the Bible. Harvard scientists have discovered we all trace back to two people. Well, I knew that already. The Bible told me that. I read the thing about the flood, or I was watching thing about the flood. So one scientist is, is an atheist. He's talking about the ridiculous story of the flood. But he goes, but there was a worldwide catastrophe around that time called the flood. So what he said was the, the Christian flood story is just ridiculous. But at that time, there was a worldwide catastrophe. Okay. What you're saying is the Bible is true. That's what you're telling me. This God who has spoken to us through his son became a man. That's how he spoke to us. 
God became a man, church, because only man could pay for sin. By man came sin. By man had to come the offering for sin. Death is required to pay for our sins, but God cannot die. Therefore, he took to himself human flesh. I repeat again, Jesus was not in a costume. He was not God wearing a man suit. He fully took to himself his human nature without abandoning his divine nature. He was both God and man. His law requires perfect obedience, which we cannot do. That's why Jesus was born of a virgin. Virgin birth is so important to Easter. You know why? See, Christmas and Easter, how are they linked? This, this way. Here's how they're linked. Without the virgin birth, you don't have a sinless Savior to rise from the dead. Understand that? The Bible says the curse comes to us through the Father. Through Adam, death came, not through Eve. So Christ, being virgin born, does not receive the curse of Adam. Therefore, he is sinless. Being God, he is able to live according to the law perfectly, keeping it in every detail perfectly. That's why he's our substitute. You realize that the, the, nothing has changed, right? You still have to be perfect to be saved. But pastor, I'm not perfect. Right. Jesus is. He's our substitute. He perfectly obeyed God for us. And his righteousness, his perfect righteousness is given to us when we come to him by faith. And he was offered on the cross as the perfect sinless sacrifice. Since the wages of sin was death, and Jesus had no sin, death had no claim on him. You ever notice how Jesus talks about his death? I lay down my life, no man takes it from me. When he died, he didn't just die, like he gave up the ghost, surrendered his spirit. In one text, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Death couldn't take him. He had to offer himself to it. It had no claim because of his perfection. It had no claim because he was righteous. And of course, death couldn't hold him there. He offered himself to it, and he took himself away from it whenever he wanted because he was righteous and perfect. When he rose from the dead, he proved that he was God. He demonstrated that all that he had said was true. Then this God-man, Jesus, ascended to heaven and offers the forgiveness of sins to all who will come to him by faith, forsaking their sins, repentance, turn from sin. Do you have a sin today if you're not saved? Do you have a sin that you're holding on to? Forsake it. Confess it. Turn to Christ for forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. It doesn't matter what it is. I have sat with murderers and child molesters who weeped like little babies over their sin and called upon Christ. And you know what I believe? They were saved because he died for them as well. He bore their sin as well. 
The message of this season is that Jesus is the eternal God who came to bring salvation to mankind. First Timothy 3.16 says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And I can give you non-biblical sources that confirm all of that. Christ is risen, church. To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Isaiah 55, 6, I'll close with this. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. He will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. To whom? To whom shall we go? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much this morning. We thank you for so many things to thank you for. The resurrection of Christ being just one of them. Thank you for this great salvation. My faith is not in the historical record. It's in the scriptures. But this morning I wanted to demonstrate that even the historical record demonstrates to us the scriptures are true. And they're to be believed. That Jesus is who he said he was. He did die. He did rise from the dead. He has ascended to heaven. And today, today he calls, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I thank you that our faith is historic. It's true. It's provable. It's not blind. It's rooted in fact. Christ is God. And he has risen. He's alive today in heaven. That's how we know that heaven is a physical place, because the physical body of Christ is there. The risen, but the body he rose with on that day, 2,000 years ago, he still has today. He bears the marks in his hands. He bears the wound in his side, which he will bear for all of eternity as a picture of his love and mercy and grace, of which we have received so undeservedly. Thank you. We bless the name of Christ this morning. Stir our hearts. Save the lost. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.